Welcome, welcome, welcome to the My Thing Is This podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. And each week, we talk about what's going on in the world. And as we talk about that, I let you know my thing is this, about what's going on in the world. Again, I'm your host, Troy Sampson. Welcome to the My Thing Is This podcast. Stay tuned, buckle up, and enjoy the ride. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy Kwanzaa, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and all those good things and good tidings and cheers. This is the week ending December 26, 2021. It is actually our last weekend of the year um, for 2021. Uh, it's been a crazy year. We've seen a lot of things happen, a lot of things going on uh, around us this year in 2021. We've seen a lot of people come. We've seen a lot of people go. We've seen a lot of people get poor. We've seen a lot of people get rich. And so 2021 is a crazy year. But I want to talk about the, the, some of the things that happened over the past week. Uh, I'm going to do a, probably do a special podcast on Thursday or Friday of this week to kind of um, recap the year to end 2021 and um, hopefully get that out to everybody uh, over the weekend or that following Monday uh, when we get into the new year uh, and look at things in retrospect in 2021 and then maybe talk about some things that we can look forward to or set some things up that we can get into in 2022 as we continue to move forward. You know, time keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking into the future. As the old song says, fly like an eagle. Uh, but a couple of things I want to talk about today. The first thing I want to dig into uh, from this past week is the trial and the eventual verdict um, of the Kim Potter Dante Wright case. Uh, the jury deliberated for a couple of days and found her guilty on both counts of manslaughter um, in the death of Dante Wright. Uh, and I thought that this was one of those situations where, you know, when you, when you make a mistake and the mistake is so significant, even though it was a mistake, you can't let it go by without um, some sort of consequence with it. And so I think the jury, despite all of her tears on the stand and what they saw in the body cam in terms of her making a mistake. I thought that they took in consideration that her life was lost. They took in consideration that she's a 26 year vet. Um, I don't think the video that surfaced that came out showing her, you know, on body cam telling officers to turn off the body cam, separate, go to your cars, don't say anything to anybody. I don't think that had any relevance because I don't think the jury was privy to that information. But I just think that this was so, it was so egregious. And, and it brings to the question in my mind, and my thing is this, when do we finally put something in on, on the books like the Peace Act and qualified immunity that will hold officers accountable? Um, we've had several ends of the spectrum here when it comes to police shootings where we have police are shooting unarmed men or unarmed people, mainly unarmed men of color or African-Americans, right? And then we have a situation where you have an officer yell, taser, 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 and actually pulls the gun out and shoots this individual, and this individual eventually dies. Now, some of her testimony, and so with that being said, before I jump into some of the testimony, but with that being said, there has to be something accountable for that. Um, even if someone resists, I mean, I think the Peace Act, along with qualified immunity, 
is would be a great start. And and of course, you know, you have those folks out there that say, well, you don't want to handcuff police officers out in the field. You don't want to just because it's a dangerous job, so on and so forth. And nobody's questioning whether or not being a law enforcement officer out in these streets is a dangerous job. And I, for one, have the utmost respect for anyone that, that puts on that shield uh, and gets in that police cruiser and goes out there to serve the community every day and put their lives on the line. Because we have some nefarious people in this country. Um, let's just be real about that. We have people out here in this country that are just hell-bent on doing wrong. They're hell-bent on mischief. Some people, um, by circumstance of their environment or whatever the case may be, are forced into a life of crime. Uh, you know, and some of the things uh, that we see in our society, you know, causes people to indulge in life of crime, like mental health, and which is a topic that I'll discuss um, during this podcast. Um, I'm going to talk about mental health on this pod- on this episode. Um tonight uh and so we want to make sure that you know we cover those bases as well because there's a lot of things going on in this world that just don't make sense and i know and respect those folks that are men and women who protect and serve and not down to diminish or minimize what they have but we have to remember now this is one of the few few professions in the world that what you do on your job can result in a fatality for someone else, you know, police officers, you know, fire and rescue, ambulance, and in the medical field, you know, if you, in the medical field, call somebody to die, there's repercussions for that because you're you're operating in an environment where someone's life is in your hands. And I think this holds true for law enforcement too when they're able to don or wear that 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 waistband that has a taser and a lethal weapon, which is a a service revolver or a service gun, um, that will it it can easily take somebody's life. And so, in her testimony, you know, she talked about making a mistake. And what I find interesting about that, right? And I didn't watch a lot of the trial. I, I'll be the first to admit that I didn't watch a whole bunch of the trial. But what was fascinating about that is is that I think the jury factored in to her 26 years on the job and the fact that a taser is different from a gun. Like I said, you know, on my last podcast, I talked about an article that I read that had senior law enforcement officials saying on record that the taser and a gun are different in weight and are different in color. Most service revolvers are black, uh, whether it be a Glock or a nine millimeter, whatever they use for service revolvers, they're typically black. And most tasers are a bright green. And so one of the questions that came up, or one of the things that was stated by the law enforcement official that I think, and I'm not in the jury room, but this is just what I think. My thing is this. I think the jury factored that in when they made that decision. Um, the mechanics of, those devices and the mechanics of how to use them. Because if you raise your gun up to shoot someone, you have to raise it to get line of sight, correct? Whether you're shooting a a handgun or a rifle, you got to get line of sight. And so as you raise that to get line of sight, you have to look at that, that weapon. You're seeing that weapon. You're seeing the color of that weapon. So if you raise, if you say taser, 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 you raise that taser up to get line of sight to shoot the taser at Dante Wright, and you can't clearly see that it's yellow, 
let alone feeling the weight. Because the service revolvers, again, they said once you load that clip up with those bullets, it weighs more than a taser. And so I think the jury took that in consideration. I don't think the jury was swayed by her emotions um, on the stand um, because I think the jury really wanted to hear from this 26-year veteran what was really going on instead of hearing, you know, her just crying, crying, crying. They got that. They saw that in the, in, in the, in the body cam video. And I, and I think looking at the totality of it, and that's one of the things we got to start doing in 2022, and I'll talk about that later on in the week in my year-end podcast. We got to start taking a look at the totality of things and being more wise and discerning and seeking more knowledge and understanding. But looking at the big to- total picture of it, right? So now you have someone who on body cam is showing great emotion, that she made a mistake. It's genuine emotion, right? And then she gets to the stand. When she gets on the stand, all this emotion comes back out again. And I'm not telling people how to act or how to feel or, or, or telling them they're wrong for feeling that. But at some point, you know, you have to, you know, as a professional law enforcement officer who has seen in 26 years, I'm pretty sure you've seen a lot of stuff. You have to pull yourself together at some point. If you're defending your livelihood and yourself, pull yourself together to really be clear and articulate. And I don't think, uh, I don't think the jury bought into her wide range of emotions, which contrasts, right? So you have her on body cam showing emotion, which I thought everybody would agree. I think everybody would agree it's genuine that she made a mistake on the body cam video. Then she gets on the stand and she comes in not looking like Officer Kim Pod. She comes in looking like, as what they say, the soccer mom or looking completely different, right? Like Chauvin did. He came in clean cut. And I guess that's what, you know, lawyers are paid to do and those assistants and paralegals, whoever they got in the corner are paid to coach coach folks that they're representing to look a certain way, to present themselves a certain way to the jury. And then it was like watching a trial unfold and then watching, again, the body cam video, her crying on the stand, and then watching her hear the two guilty verdicts and just stone-faced. And I was, you know, I, I watched it and I was like, okay, so you made this mistake. So did suddenly, because, I mean, Maybe maybe it's me, and my thing is this, and maybe I'm wrong for saying this, but if I'm that emotional on a body cam and I'm emotional on the stand, when you telling me I'm guilty for my mistake and I don't show any emotion whatsoever, and then, <laughs> here's the kicker, and then fast forward to where her mugshot is done as she's now remanded into custody and taken into custody, she takes a mugshot smiling. I don't know what to make of that. I do not know what to make of that. But anyway, um, that's Kim Potter in a nutshell. Uh, I think justice was served, but I think this opens up a bigger and wide-ranging picture of things that should have been in place in terms of how we police this country to, because this is not going to be the first time, nor the last time, I believe, that someone is going to make a mistake like this. And it goes back to training. And it's funny because let me segue or let me flip into a video that I saw. I think it was on YouTube early in the week. And there was a group of gentlemen that went into a city office and they went into the city office and they were stopped at the front desk because they walked into the city offices 
with their cameras up taping as they were walking through, doing the narrative and stuff like that as they're walking through the city offices. And so they were stopped at the front desk and told that they can't videotape in the building. Um, and they weren't, I mean, it's a, it's a public space. So according to them, and, and I'm not sure or 100% on what the laws are, but according to them, they have a legal right to film any public areas. And they clearly stated on the video that they they weren't trying to go into any closed off secure areas. But nonetheless, man, I guess the cavalry showed up. Man, you had about 10, eight, nine, 10 different officers show up on the scene for these three dudes. And they were going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I remember, and this is, this is, and I'm going somewhere with this, because this is where it's key. And when it gets back to training and compiler situation. And we see it all the time when people, because we have people out there that are going to challenge the status quo and challenge that they have First Amendment rights and they're protected by the Constitution. And they will do things and capture on video and they will challenge officers to know the law, right? And I think one of the one of the things that is the training of law enforcement is to know the laws and statutes to be an officer. And it's part of the academy training. And if someone in law enforcement, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I check with one of my boys who's a police officer, but I'm almost sure that one of those things you have to, as part of your training, is know the laws and what, what you're enforcing. And so there's this back and forth between one of the gentlemen who has to be African-American and a lieutenant, a senior officer that showed up on the scene. And the senior officer kept saying, well, it's in the city ordinance, right? And the guy said, okay, well, the guy with, you know, the civilian said, well, show me what the city ordinance, pull it up. So he goes to his phone. Right. And this is where I think that if we're going to have people out there that's going to do audits, because I think the name of the video was an audit. Right. If they're going to audit um, public spaces and police officers, ensure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing in situations like this. And my thing is this. And I watched the, the entire video because there was so much going on. There were officers talking to the other guys that were with them. They were talking to the other guys. It was just all this back and forth going on. If you're going to do that. I think what needs to happen is you need to have one spokesperson because here's what happened when the guy said, when the lieutenant said, well, there's city ordinances said, you can't do that. The guy immediately, the civilian said, well, show me the city ordinances, right? And so the law enforcement officer, lieutenant, proceeded to pull out his phone, I guess, to pull it up. Then all of a sudden, because of all the chatter going back and forth, he purposely, I, I think it was, my thing is this, I think it was purposely started talking about something else and never pulled up the city ordinances. And this is where I think if you're going to do this as a group, what they did, which was going to the city officers and record just so you can challenge your, or make sure your first amendment rights or constitutional rights are being honored. Right. If you do that in a group setting, you need to have a clear objective of what you're trying to do. And when someone says it's an ordinance, everybody in your group stop talking. Have one spoke person. And, and and the only thing that's being said is, show me the ordinance. Everybody shut up. Because what he did was he called him out. And what the officer did was he deflected immediately and didn't pull out the ordinance. This is where it goes in. Because my thing is this. If you're comfortable as a law enforcement officer doing what you're doing. And someone challenges you on a law or ordinance, right? It's not a challenge to your manhood. 
No one is catching you off duty and challenging whether or not you're a good man or good father or good man or whatever it is you want to say off your off time. But as you're acting as a public law enforcement officer and someone says, show me the statute or the ordinance, I believe, and my thing is this, it's your duty to do that. If you're going to quote ordinances, then pull them up. If these ordinances are PDF documents and you got a smartphone, keep those ordinances on your phone. And it shouldn't be a challenge to your manhood if a civilian says, show me the ordinance. The civilian is not being, a, I mean, not being, some people are being buttholes when they do this, but for most part, if a civilian asks you to show you the ordinance, right, and you're trying to enforce an ordinance that you say is right, then stand on the ordinance and show it to him because that whole situation could have been resolved as soon as he says, show me the ordinance. Because if he had pulled the ordinance up and the ordinance said that it's illegal to film on city property, inside city property on city spaces, then it was right there. The police said, well, here it is right here. This is the ordinance that says you guys can't do what you're doing in city in city property. You have to go. Then those guys that were doing the videotaping, they got no choice because the ordinance says that. Now, if they want to challenge the Constitution, which is federal, right, then that's a different conversation for a different day. But from a city standpoint, you exit the premises. Where he pulled that ordinance up. But most officers don't do that because my thing is this. I think a lot of officers, and not all of them, claim that they know the law, know the ordinances, but they don't. And when someone challenges them on it, they take it personal and think it's an affront to them as a man or woman to their personal self. And it's not. But I think some of them see it as, well, you challenged me on the law. I know the law. Well, if you know the law, quote it back to them. If you know what the ordinance is, if you can't remember, because I don't expect the law enforcement officers to remember every single umpteen hundred ordinances that they got to enforce. Right. But I expect them to have a working knowledge of basic stuff. And if there's an ordinance out there and I think it should be, be a requirement that they carry some sort of um, smartphone or device that has the ordinances on there so that they can pull them up or say, wait a minute, let me go into this office to stand tight. Guys, calm down. We're going to hold tight. I'm going to get the city ordinances so I can show this gentleman that it's against the city ordinances for you to film in the office. But they don't do that because what they what happens is they exude their power. And that's one of the problems that we have in, in, in law enforcement today is that everybody wants to exude their power. Now, some people will say a lot of people in law enforcement are people that, uh, that uh, have been bullied in school. So the best way to get back is to become a police officer where you got more power. I mean, I don't, I don't get into all that. That's a personal, that's a person's personal thing. And I think if you do comprehensive enough psychological testing during the process of making you know, people going to be police officers, somehow you can flush that out. I don't really know. I'm not, you know, the, the architect of those tests. I don't really know. I don't know if there's people that can cheat around that and you really don't know their true nature, which is probably the biggest problem with law enforcement now. And there's a lot of people cheat or they, Law enforcement is so strapped, they just bypass or allow certain things to be done on, or be flagged on psychological, but because they're short of staff, they still make people officers anyway. But it's a training issue. And it goes back to what Kim Potter did. It's a training issue. Uh, if you, you have to train and it's repetitious. When you go, if you know that you if, you, if your dominant hand is your right hand, most people, I would think, if it was me in law enforcement, I would put my service revolver on my dominant hand side. If my dominant hand is my right side, right? I'm right-handed. If my dominant hand is my right, then I'm going to keep my service revolver or service weapon on my right side of my holster. And 
anything else is going to be on the left. So when I go left, I automatically know in my mind, if I go left, I'm not grabbing my service revolver. I'm grabbing either taser or I'm grabbing something else. If I go right, that means I'm ready to take somebody out. And so you should know that, just like you should know the ordinances. And that's why a lot of times, you know, and and, and it's really, and I'm really was surprised by that video that it was high-ranking law enforcement officials that were showing up and none of them really decided to quell the situation or humble themselves enough to say, these guys are right. The ordinance does say, does not say that they can't, it's illegal for them to film inside city property. Let them film. You're not allowed to get access to these private spaces. So as long as you stay in the hallway, we're okay. Let them do their job. We'll post an officer right here. We'll have officers such and such stand in the hallway while, or, or shadow you while you're in public spaces, right? So to ensure that you don't go into private spaces because we may not have somebody in the private space to stop you from getting there. So this officer is going to quietly in the background shadow you as you do your thing and then we'll all go on about our business and leave it at that. And then in, in the video, there's always that one officer with, it, with what they used to call him back in the day, RoboCop. That one officer who looks like he's been in the gym, pumped up on steroids or, well, I ain't going to say steroids because he couldn't be natural. So I'm not accusing anybody or make an assumption that people on stories. There's always this one jacked up officer that wants to come up and be Buster Bully. And that was one that showed up in this instance that wanted to be Buster Bully. And the funny part about it is, if I was those gentlemen doing that, I would have stood there and said, show me the ordinance. That's all would have came out of my mouth. Show me the ordinance. If the ordinance says I can't be here, I'll leave. Show me the ordinance. But, you know, they allow law enforcement to emulate them. And of course, they came up and started using, Buster Bully came up and then it became a situation where there's a personal threat to their to their body. And so I guess they complied, so to speak, to leave because they didn't want to get slammed or jacked up, which is fine. So in a way, they kind of got, got out of that. But that's, that goes back to Kim Parr. That goes back to training and understanding and knowing your job. So enough about that. Now I'm going to transition on to, we've had the Omicron variant uh, all of a sudden spike up where people are just popping up positive. And apparently this this new Omicron variant is um, more contagious than before. But they're saying it's less deadly though. Um, but it varies from people to people. I know people that have got it and have reported that they don't have any symptoms at all. And then some people have stuff like runny nose, headaches, chills, fevers, stuff like that. So it varies from body to body. And I remember seeing a video um, of a doctor who talked about the coronavirus in general. And this was an African-American doctor. And he said, one of the challenges with this coronavirus is, especially with individuals is, is what you have, what your body makeup is. And what I mean by that is, is if you're obese, you got pre-existing conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, all those things. And your body's immune system and your body may be compromised even before you got the coronavirus. Even before the coronavirus came, you may be walking around with a compromised body. You may be grossly overweight. You may have high blood pressure. You may have diabetes. You may have asthma. You may have a whole list of pre-existing conditions um, that again, and and, I, and I'm going to go down this road. Just to let y'all know I'm going down this road again about personal choice. And for those who say they don't trust the government, right? Well, this is the same government that regulates the same FDA that has allowed these vaccines to become, be put in use, right? This is the same FDA that's got everybody approving everything that we eat. That's got everybody fat and over obese and high blood pressure and diabetes. The same government 
the FDA falls under the same government that people saying they don't trust the government. The FDA falls under that. And the FDA is the same one that's approving high fructose corn syrup, natural flavors, pectin, kerosene, soy lectin, MSG, all these things that are in that you can't pronounce in your labels, these are all contributing to obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, and other health conditions. And it's the same government you don't trust with this 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 vaccine is the same government that's allowing this stuff to be intaked into our body. You eat at McDonald's, but you won't take the vaccine. You got some people out there that will say, well, you know, I don't trust the vaccine, but I'm probably going to get pneumonia shot. Well, I'm probably going to get this, this, this vaccine or that vaccine. That's kind of, wow, okay. All right, so you won't get the vaccine, but you'll take these other shots, like a pneumonia shot, shingle shot. You'll take all these other shots, but you won't take this vaccine, which I'm going to segue into one of the reasons why this vaccine was able to be put together so quickly. So I came across a couple articles from back in 2020. Um, one was from um, nature.com and the other one was from uh, stat.news, I think it was. And so they talked about how these vaccines and, and related to the spike in protein or spike protein that boosts the immune system, right? And so one of the things they talked about was, was decades of work, and this is from the article, so I'm going to read this from the article. Um, it's one of the it's one of the paragraphs in the article. It said decades of work, first on the corresponding HIV spike protein, and then its counterparts from other viruses, including SARS, MERS, and seasonal coronavirus, showed how best to design and produce the SARS COVID or SARS CoV two version or the vaccine. Um, basically show how the best to design them. Sophisticated methods to image the spike proteins via recent advances in electron microscopy allow researchers and vaccine makers to rapidly study what they were making, gaining assurance that they were on the right track. And so, of course, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines delivered a spike protein in the form of mRNA um, technology. Uh, it says this technology emerged during the past decade from university laboratories working on HIV and influenza viruses, which then triggered Zika, Ebola, and coronavirus vaccine programs at NIH and in the pharmaceutical industry, right? And so these viruses, there's a lot of virus research going on. I'm talking about billions of dollars going on in the background. Um, and then and these viruses, and these, I'm not viruses, but these vaccines are basically built off the backs of other vaccine research that these, that our people at NIH and they do that they've been studying all the time. And so when I hear people say, well, I don't trust the government. I don't trust this. I don't trust that. Um, this vaccine, I don't know what's in this vaccine. Well, one of the things that you got to realize, right? Um, and this is another article that says, for instance, researchers at the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in Bethesda, Maryland, knew from their researches on MERS and SARS that it was best to tune the RNA sequence to stabilize the residing spike proteins in the form it adopts before it docks with the host cell, right? So these are some of the things, this is high level egghead stuff, but basically what they're saying is, is that, you know, um, the research to help develop, develop these vaccines against this new coronavirus didn't start in January of 2020. 
It says, for years, researchers have been paying attention to related coronavirus, such as SARS, which is, if you don't know what SARS is, it's called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And some have been working on new kinds of vaccines in an effort, um, and some had been working on new kinds of vaccines in an effort that has now paid off spectacularly. So that's why they were able to come up with this, these COVID vaccines, these coronavirus vaccines so quickly because they were building off of earlier versions of SARS and MERS. Um, and even though I think in one report it said that they didn't really get through all the testing of the SARS and MERS before, I think they may have gotten through stage one of SARS maybe back in 2012 or it wasn't MERS. But nonetheless, the, the, the technology and the research is already there. Plus, they pour a lot of money into this research. So... This conspiracy theory that we don't trust the government or that they just came up with this these COVID vaccines out of nowhere is, is false. The research shows that they built vaccines. It's the same thing with the flu shot for those people that get the flu shot. The flu shot is not a new shot created in a laboratory completely new. The flu shot is looking at all the markers from previous strains of flu and just adding on to those markers. Their research is already there, so they just got to um, ramping up and they were able to get all these companies um, because I think the Chinese posted the DNA of the coronavirus on a website back in January 2020 when they first learned about this coronavirus in China. And so they posted on January 20th. Unfortunately, our government didn't respond to that post and really start banging on the door and shutting stuff down and getting ready Um way until March when this thing was already in the country and doing this thing. Had they had acted in January, we might not have, what is it, 815,000 deaths as a result of that. And so when I hear people say they don't trust the government, just remember this same government is the same people that are approving the foods that you eat, but you don't want to trust them to do research that they to put together vaccines quickly based on research that's already there. So again, you know, again, it's it's a personal choice. And then I came across this this message from an ER nurse. Uh, got off a website. Uh, the nurse's name is Audrey Went, and um, it says she watched an unvaccinated man in his thirties, the father of three children, enter what they call the restless state. <laughs> she said, "I looked over at his wife. The lights were very dim." And all I could hear was him breathing with the help of a BPAP ventilator. His wife asked me, what do I do? I replied, if it were me, I will call your children and have them tell their dad that they love him. I think now would be a good time. And so, you know, she knew, the nurse knew by his demeanor that this man was going to be intubated soon. And you never know if you're going to get off the ventilator um, at some point the nurse said through tears and so she goes on to talk about you know um, how she cares for the patients she doesn't care whether you're unvaccinated or vaccinated but that she likens them to showing unconditional love that you have for a child and she said you know the pain of seeing someone near the end of their life is overpowering for her and it is in the name of preventing this outcome that she pleads with her patients, pleads with the public to get vaccinated, get a booster shot when eligible and wear your mask when in a high risk environment. 
You know, she talks about, it went on to say, many people, even some who knew and trusted her, have not heeded her advice. That includes her Uncle John, who she saw for the last time just before Thanksgiving. You know, her Uncle John, you know, um, she says she's been struggling because I knew he was not vaccinated, she says. She says, I was telling him stories about people dying of COVID and he was bothered by them, but he just wasn't sure about the vaccine. He said, I never get sick, Audrey. I think my body can fight it all. She said, Uncle John, I just had this really bad feeling. If you get COVID, you're going to die. Right. And so she, her uncle never got the vaccine. And then about two weeks later, he tested positive for COVID-19. And then his condition de- declined over a matter of weeks. And he was admitted to the hospital where he died on a Monday. He was 61 years old. And so, you know, weeks prior to her uncle's death, she went on Facebook to share what she has witnessed in and out of her hospital. She said, my beloved community, I want you to know And she put in capital letters, you. She said, on our backs, we will carry you. No matter what your beliefs, your choices, your lifestyle, your past, our legs grow tired and we beg for your help. But we will continue to carry you until this race is over, my friends. Believe in us, help us, and get vaccinated. And so that was her pleading um, to people in her Facebook post about getting vaccinated because she saw it, she sees it every day. And you know, healthcare workers, God bless them, are going through it right now. And they're seeing this stuff firsthand. And this is what I'm about to talk about now. Or what I'm what I'm saying now is gonna segue into what I want to talk about next, which is mental health. I mean, these nurses and doctors are human and they're watching death happen in front of their faces every day during this pandemic, right? And they're seeing it firsthand. And I'm pretty sure it's taking a toll on a lot of healthcare workers. A lot of them have quit, but a lot of them continue, like, you know, Audrey went, God bless her heart, to continue to push on for the love of the craft and love of patience. But it's taking a toll. And, you know, there needs to be mental health support and services for our first responders uh, uh, that are working on the front lines of, of this pandemic. They need support. And so we're going to, so I'm segueing into mental health. And I came across a couple of interesting articles this week. Um, it was two articles and then one was an actual uh, post on Instagram um, of Steve Francis. I don't know if you guys um, remember Steve Francis. And many of you probably do who live here in a DMV. Um, Steve Francis grew up in a DMV. Um, went to Allegheny Community College and became a star at University of Maryland uh, under Gary Williams and then went on to become Stevie Franchise and had a great career in the NBA and then eventually retired and he went through his struggles. And so I'm going to talk about Steve Francis and he wrote it because he wrote an article in the Players Tribune about his mental health struggles. But first, before I do that, I'm going to talk about Torre. Torre is a writer. Um, you guys probably know him. He's a writer, African-American brother. Um, been around for a while. He's been a writer, been in the entertainment field for a long time. And he talked about the holiday blues. And he wrote this article with the holidays coming up. And, you know, the holidays is, is one of those times a year where people really go through it, um, whether it be Thanksgiving or Christmas, especially Christmas uh, and Thanksgiving, where they just go through it because, you know, something happened to them um, 
during the holidays where they just get lonely, rather it be the loss of a loved one. And most of it's loss of a loved one. Um, somebody's not here anymore, or you face some sort of other traumatic experience during the holiday season that causes you to go into a deep, dark space, right? And so Kwame, uh, well, not Kwame, Torre talked about suicidal thoughts, right? He talked about going through it in December, these holidays, going through it, you know, just having a struggle. And, um, and he said his recovery, he said, I think my recovery, and he's recovering through it. He said, I think my recovery was slowed by two thoughts, right? Men aren't supposed to worry about their feelings and black people don't go to therapy. Men aren't supposed to worry about their feelings and black people aren't to go to therapy, right? Don't go to therapy, right? He said, deep down, I said, that's some white people shit. Excuse my friends. That's some white people, S-H-I-T, sugar, honey, iced tea, right? He said, I felt like I had nowhere to turn. I struggled with taking my talking to my wife to express my status because I didn't want to scare her, right? And I felt like I was supposed to be the strong one who was an anchor for her. So, you know, you got a situation where black people don't, in our community, African-American community, black people don't go to therapy, right? We got nowhere to turn. And if you're married, you don't want to turn to your spouse, right? Uh, because you you feel as though you have to be the anchor, especially if you're a husband, you got to be the anchor. And number one, well, first of all, you don't want to scare your wife. That's first of all. Second thing is you want to make sure you're anchor and strong for her when she goes through stuff. You know, most husbands, we 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 the armor bearers in our household. We got to wear it all and we got to take it all, right? He says, I don't think I could turn to my male friends to express my sadness because talking about difficult emotions is not what I ever did with my male friends. And so he can't turn to your boys, right? He said he can't turn to his boys because he never really did that with his with his boys, right? He said, would they even know how to respond? My interactions with my male friends aren't about talking about our feelings. And I was ashamed to turn to my female friends because I didn't want them to know how I felt. I thought being a man meant soldiering through and being tough in the face of anything. If you get physically hurt, you walk it off. If you get mentally hurt, you just play through the pain, right? That's what he said. And so let's unpack that for a minute. So you can't, as a male, especially an African-American male, it's just so much stuff you got to carry, so much trauma. And we're going to talk about this. I'll talk about this uh, when I get to Steve Francis, right? Because this is one of the biggest things he talked about. And, it, and it's interesting. There's a quote that he made, a couple quotes, um, that he made that I want to dig into. But let's finish up with Tori. He said, but sometimes it can be too much to soldier through. Sometimes you got to talk to someone. I want you to know that you have a right to feel sad or depressed. It's natural. It's not some white S-H-I-T, right? Black people get depressed. Some black people kill themselves. Some black people figure it out, figure out how to cope and heal. And talking through your feeling matters, right? Professional therapists can help you. And so, you know, um, there are people out there, you know, professional therapists that can talk to you. If you don't feel comfortable going to somebody that doesn't look like you, there are plenty of African-American um, therapists out there, plenty of, you know, therapists of every race out there um, that you can go talk to no matter what your race is, right? That you can go talk to. Um, he said since he's been in his low, he said he noticed more and more black celebrities talking openly about their therapy, being in therapy and helping them normalize the practice. If your body is sick, right? He said, if your body is sick, you want to go to you would go to the doctor, right? If your mind or spirit needs some help, if your mental health is off, you're plagued by thoughts that you don't want, 
then you should consider talking to a therapist. So if you're going through it in your mind, your spirit needs help, your mental health is off, and you're plagued with thoughts that you don't want to have, consider talking to a therapist. It's not just, a, it's not just for white people. It's not just for rich people. It's for everyone who feels, who wants to feel good in their skin. Everybody deserves to feel at home in their own mind, especially people who are dealing with, you know, the multi-generational trauma of being black in America. You know, PTSD and, you know, a lot of people walk around here. A lot of people come from rough neighborhoods and backgrounds, especially in the African-American community, walking around this joint with PTSD. PTSD ain't just a soldier thing. You know, when you grow up, you grow up where your bedroom window, every night you're hearing bullets. You're seeing people die. You got friends that you went to school with one day and the next day or the next week, they're gone because of death. That stuff can cause PTSD, man. You know, um, it's interesting. I was I had talking to a friend. A friend came up to visit. Um, I won't say his name, but he was a friend. I was a friend of in the military, and he he was tasked with um, when the Haitian migration came about, and the Coast Guard was involved in you know that interdiction where they would pick a lot of Haitian folks off these over overpopulated boats and stuff like that and bring them on board, take care of them and feed them and everything like that, right? Well, my friend had the task and the duty of going on the boat that they were all pulled off of and basically burning it at sea, right? Taking, you know, pyrotechnics over there, gas or whatever, diesel fuel, whatever. And basically, once they got everybody off, burning the boat. And he talked about just the smell and the stench in the boats, the quarters in the boats and all that stuff. And then not, not to mention having to do that with people that look like, you know, do that to a boat that people are trying to escape that look like him, knowing that they weren't able to come to this country and seek asylum, but they were being sent back. And he said that actually caused him PTSD, just having to go through that, that whole process. And so PTSD, you know, again, that was his military experience, but PTSD could be growing up in the Fifth Ward, you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, the ghetto boys talk about the Fifth Ward in Houston, you know, you talk about Chicago, Southside, you know, you talk about the hood in Baltimore, the hood in D.C., the crack era, you know, um, growing up in, in the rough spots of New York, the LAS, Lower East Side, Uptown, Bronx, Harlem, you know, parts of Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy, you know, seeing all the, the, the just the carnage of murder and all those things and violence going, people, you know, suffer with PTSD, Post-traumatic stress syndrome. So, you know, it, you know, he goes on to talk about it's okay to feel depressed or suicide, suicidal. Talk to someone, though. When you feel like that, you're feeling depressed, you're feeling suicidal, it's not wrong for you to feel that way, he's saying. But when you do feel that way, talk to somebody because life can get better. You just need to reach out for help. You know, and so that was an article written by Torre. So now let's get into Steve, Steve Franchise. He, he wrote a... He he wrote a, a a letter, an open letter to the young folks on Players Tribune, and he also did um, a YouTube video, kind of summarizing what he talked about on YouTube for the Players Tribune. But I think I remember seeing somebody posted a clip of the video on Instagram, and so some of the highlights from what he talked about, you know, he talked about how he used to go to the club and drop twenty thousand dollars just for show, passing out bottles um, of expensive champagne and, and liqueurs and stuff like that, you know, just being real. 
He said he never saw the bill at the end of the night, but then each month he would get a call from his accountant, you know, with smoke coming out of his ears, talking about, Steve, come on, bro. You know, because he didn't ran his Amex black card up at the club, you know. Um, Steve talked about, you know, he said six years ago, you know, I, I struggled with mental health. He said at the time I was dealing with so much stress and anxiety that all I wanted to do was just drink to shut my brain off. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to think. I just wanted to sit back with the juice and goose in my own world. He said, I just, I just wanted to be numb. That's the very best way I could describe it. And then pretty soon I was drinking every day. My career was over. I didn't know what was coming next and I was just lost, man. And so he went on to talk about, you know, growing up in the hood. He said, when I was growing up, you didn't talk about your emotions. He's like, come on, man. In the hood, that was like snitching. You just don't do it. You keep it to yourself and you keep it moving. <clears throat> he said, that's why, he said, but that's why I'm sharing my story because I know how many kids out there are growing up just like I did and they don't have anybody to talk to about this stuff. You know, he goes on to say, sometimes I think PTSD is the curse of the projects. You learn to just bury all your emotions. You keep it moving. You might laugh about something with your friends like it's all a joke, but deep down, you're scared as hell, you know? Um, you just look for an escape. He said it was a simple conversation he had um, to put him on the path to getting some help. He said he was talking to, uh, he said, my friend and former Tennessee lady of all great, WNBA great, Chimika Hosquall, who was one of the, probably one of the very few of the first athletes to come out and really talk about their mental health. Because Shamika, you know, went through her mental health challenges too. You know, she had a lot of stuff going on in her life too. Um, even when she was at Tennessee, and but she never really talked about it until she got to the WNBA. And she, he said, I was talking to my friend Shamika Hoskall one day, and for whatever reason, I was able to open up to her because I knew she'd understand me. Because Shamika had been dealing with the mental health stuff too. Um, and he said, at that point, I just said to myself, yo, you know what, man, I'm so tired. I can't keep doing this, right? And so, you know, getting that help, you know, it, it, it wasn't easy for him. You know, he, he said, I started talking to a cancer and it was just that simple. But in his interview, his sit down, he talks about his couple quotes he talks about. He talked about the levees breaking and what he meant by that. And so when I heard this, I was like, you know what? That was on point, Steve. He was like, you know, he said the levees breaking. And he said, it's a series of dams, he said what it is. He said, damn, how much money I spent. And then he said, it's damn this, it's damn that. And he said, at some point, the levee's going to break. All those dams, the levee's going to break. And I thought that was really interesting and profound when he said that. And he said, mental health to me is being able to admit that you're tired. He said, I was tired of holding on to all these things. I was tired of holding on all these people together that didn't care about Stephen. And he talked about that. He talked about how, you know, when you're up, in the, when you're up on top, everybody's around. But when you get dark, everybody disappears. When the money stopped flowing the way it was flowing or money stopped being kicked out the way it was being kicked out, you know, people just disappear. And then it goes back to um, talking about being a snitch about the emotions that I quoted in the, in the Player Tribune article. He talks about that in the video. He said, I'm not a snitch. He said, I'm not a snitch, but growing up, speaking out about being mentally soft was like snitching. He's like, yo, you can't tell your boys when you're growing up, you know, that you mentally soft or you got feelings or you feel a certain way kind of stuff. He said, that's like snitching. Um, he said, you know, more about his scars from his childhood. He said, you know, he had zero grieving 
when his mom died. He said once he got to Maryland, once he got to Allegheny and off to Maryland, you know, his mom passed away. It was like he was the, 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 the hope for his family to get out, you know, and he didn't have time to grieve. He didn't have time to grieve her. You know, he said he suppressed it all in and went on to become Steve's franchise in the NBA. And then when he stopped playing, you know, um, all that trauma came flooding back. In the interview on YouTube, he talked about, you know, the day he really knew it was it. He said he came back. He said he was, he got put on the bench. He said he was benched. And he said he knew right then that was going to be the end because he wasn't playing no more. He was benched. And so he just took the attitude that he didn't care. And that's when his drinking really picked up. And then eventually at some point, you know, he was out of the league. And then once he got out of the league, all that suppressed trauma that he had from growing up in the projects. And he goes into a bunch of other details that he had to face when he was a child in that Prayer Tribune article. So go to playertribune.com, um, look for Steve Francis's article, and read it. It's very deep um, and very uh, informative as well. He said once he stopped playing, all those suppressed emotions started coming back. And he said he went into drinking, and that's when he kind of spiraled out. But here's the one thing he finished up that story, that interview with. He said, "I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm one of the blessed athletes to come out to tell that I'm not a broke story." So Steve still got dough. So even though he went through a bunch of stuff, he's saying he still got dough. And so you know, my thing is this, because this is the my thing is this podcast. You know, you're going through. You know, you got to seek help. You know, you got to, I mean, even for us living, living, you know, living for Christ, you know, um, trying to do right and live right by Christ and, and going to church on a regular basis and being committed to Christ, you know, we can read the Bible for wisdom and we can, you know, um, pray to him, you know, for the things that others need and even what we need and really lean on him and trust in him and not be afraid and be strong and good courage. But at some point, we got to talk to somebody because we can't do it by ourselves. A man can't grow himself and know himself by himself. That's a quote from Dr. Johnny Parker, who leads our, uh, uh, the men's fellowship group at our church, First Baptist Church in Glen Arden. Shout out to Dr. Johnny Parker. Um, a man can't know himself and grow himself by himself. And so I believe, and my thing is this, that every profession that's out there, everything that's going on, I believe it flows through God's hands and he put people out there that's qualified to help us with mental health out there. We just have to use the wisdom and discernment that we learn from his word to know when we got to go get help. You know, <clears throat> you know, um, God is a God of miracles, but he's also a God of, of wisdom and, and knowledge and understanding and discernment. And we need to discern when we need that help. You know, we can't sit around and keep saying to ourselves, you know, we're going to just pray it away or whatever case may be. And then we stay in our dark place and we isolate ourselves because that's when you get dark is when you isolate. We got to trust in him that he gives us enough wisdom and humbleness to say, let me go get some help. Let me go talk to somebody, you know. Um, you know, there's there's some therapists out there, man. Um, especially, you know, if you feel if you if you're African-American, you feel more comfortable talking to a therapist. I know the young brother who was on Oprah. I follow him on Instagram. Kia Gaines. Um, look him up on Instagram, K-I-E-R Gaines, um, G-A-I-N-E-S. He's on Instagram. I know he's he's doing positive things with therapy. He's posting great messages, and I think you can seek him out for help. I know there's a sister out there, uh, Erica St. Bernard. Um, she's, a, she's a pretty good therapist out there, too. Look her up, Erica St. Bernard. I think it's E-R-I-C-K-A St. Bernard. She's another one. Um, and there's a host of therapists out there, man, that you can talk to, um, 
that you can sit down and talk to. So don't be afraid. You know, my thing is this. We can't do everything on our own. We can't do everything in our own strength. And just as we lean on God, let's lean on the people that God has anointed to to, to, to talk to us about mental health. Um, so we got to be able to to do that and not be scared to do it and not look at ourselves as less than a man or, or a punk because, you know, we decided to seek out mental health. Um, Tory said it. You know, more celebrities are embracing it. You know, more athletes are talking about it. Um, and it's always been something that's been kind of shunned in our community uh, that we need help. Um, but we do. You know, we got to talk to somebody. You know, um, you know, you got accountability brothers. You know, your boys, talk to them. You know, if you're, if, and if your boys, if you can't talk to your boys and your boys understand they want to claim you, then they're really not your boys. You know what I'm saying? But I would advise anyone that's really going through a struggle, um, depressed, suffering with depression, any sort of bipolar disorder, um, thinking about suicide, seek professional help. You know, our boys are our boys, but they're not licensed therapists. They can cheer us up. And if you are a good friend of somebody that you know that's depressed and seeking mental health uh, assistance, encourage them to go seek help. Help them go find it. Go with them to help them find you know, that therapist that can help get through to them and help them get through this tough time. If it takes, go through a couple of sessions because they don't feel comfortable, go through a couple of sessions with them. I mean, you're a punk. That means you're a true friend. You know what I mean? Friends, friends will do what they need to do. You know, a friend will lay down his life for a brother. That's what the good book says. You know, a friend will lay down his life for his brother. You know, taking your brother through therapy to a therapist ain't laying down your life actually. You know, but it's, it's 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 doing what you need to do to get your brother help. And so, you know, we don't need to turn to alcohol and drugs and, and promiscuous behavior as a, as a means of therapy. Those things just only lead to destruction. You need to get professional help to deal with that. And so that's my encouragement to everybody um, to do that. Um, Steve Francis is one of those ones that's opened up. And, you know, a lot of people say, you know, will say, I get it, I get it. You know, I understand what you're saying. And we've seen the history where people, well, it ain't going to happen to me. I'm not going to go broke or I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And people get so arrogant and bold. The next thing you know, they end up as as that story. You know, when Steve Francis was going through his stuff, you know, I should have listened to what he said in Players Tribune. That's a young athlete, young former pro athlete 25 years from now, you know, or just playing right now. And they just young and in their prime look back on their career after it's over with. Yeah, I saw Steve Francis. Like, I should listen to Steve. Or they've gotten themselves in trouble. Talk to somebody, man. Drugging, drinking, chasing, you know, dealing with your pain through drugs, alcohol, or, or, or women. It's not the move. Get yourself professional help. You're destroying yourself. You're wasting money. You're, wasting, you're, you're, you're burning through your temple, which is you, your body, your soul, your mind, your body. Get that help, you know. Get that help. So while we talk about Steve Francis, I'm gonna transition or segue into. It was big news when it first came out, but it turned out apparently it's turned out to be fake news, which was MSN <laughs> reported that they got a story from authority that Steph Curry and Aisha Curry were in an open marriage. Now they say they got it on authority, right? And so the story broke. So I saw a couple of YouTube clips that talked about it. And on the surface, it seemed like the story could be plausible, right? Because I think a couple of years ago, Aisha went on a view and made this comment on national TV, which is very surprising to me, that she felt some kind of way because men wasn't sliding up in her DMs. Why would you want a man sliding up? You're a married woman. 
you so-called woman of God. Why are you worrying about or wanting men to slot up in your DMs? My thing is this. If you're a happily married woman to a professional athlete, a nice-looking guy like that who is getting $200 million contracts like every four years and loves his children, love you, <clears throat> why are you worrying about somebody sliding up in your DMs? And so it, it's, as fast as that story came out, as fast as it died because it was verified not to be true, and I think Steph and both Aisha did a great job of never really addressing it. You know, I follow Steph on Instagram, and he never said anything about it. Um, never even, and it's kind of funny because it came right after he broke Ray Allen's record. Imagine that, right? But you know, a lot of people will always say, "Well, there's smoke, there's fire." So you know, right now, it, it, I, I'm going to take it on face value that they're not into that. But you never know, because um, these days, people, you know, are people. They're going to do what they're going to do. But you know, I don't believe Steph and Aisha are doing that. But the way somebody crafted the story, right, and how they take wow, she wasn't there the night he broke the record and the things she said on The View and they put all those things together. And once they get that that momentum going, they can get it to somebody that's at MSN that's willing to believe it and not double-check and triple-check those sources. Then it gets put out there on a the national platform like that. And so those things seem plausible, right? But you got to remember, um, there was really no timetable around when he was going to break that record. You know, he was going through it. And he was shooting terrible. I think the pressure of breaking the record was getting to him. And then it finally became a situation where it was NYC. And I know some people say, well, his wife could have flew out for that day. And she was actually there with him in Brooklyn when they played the Nets. Because they played, I think they played, he broke the record against the Knicks. I think a few days before that, um, they was on a road trip, East Coast road trip. And they played Brooklyn. And she was actually there with him in Brooklyn. And then she went back home. And he could have told her to go back home. Or, I mean, you got to remember, they got kids. And not everybody is into pounding their kids off on a nanny, right? And maybe they're that couple that don't do that. Maybe they're they're that hands-on couple. There's a lot of celebrity couples, NBA couples, athletic couples that are um, not into just pounding their kids off on a nanny. I mean, they got kids and they got the two little girls in school. Cannon is probably in preschool. And so she's a mom, you know, and it could have been a situation like that, you know. You know, and when you put those two to get two together, it kind of makes you give a side eye to it. And I did. I gave a little side eye to it. I'm like, when they put the fact that she what she said on the view, the fact that she wasn't there, it's like, you know, they tried to make a big deal out of when he broke the record, you know, where was his mom, this, that, and the other. And then lo and behold, pictures finally surfaced where he's giving his mom a hug. It was like they tried to make it seem as though he was shutting his mom out. You know, showing his dad love, gave his dad the ball. And then, of course, his dad took a picture with a couple models, and all of a sudden they started making a meme out of that. And he was, you know, he was shooting threes, too, because it was three, I think, barstool sports models or some models that they were, and he took a picture with them. It's just a picture, so you don't know what those pictures actually do. And so this is the snapshots that people run with. But anyway, enough about Steph. Um, but staying on the lines of Steph and, and Aisha, um, Young pastor and filmmaker Devon Franklin and him and his wife Megan Good have decided to call it quits after I think nine years of marriage. Um, so we really don't know what this, what the backstory is on that. Um, and I think they were married for I think it was nine years. I think it might have been. Uh, but I knew that was going to be that had to be a tough marriage, you know, because he's a man. He's a man of strong faith, and I just my thing is this. You know, 
I don't know if I could marry a, a Hollywood actress, um, especially one who has scenes where they're doing scenes, whether it be love scenes or kissing scenes and stuff like that with other actors. I mean, I know it's a job, but I just, I, I know as a husband, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. Um, and maybe that's why I'm not married to an actress. Maybe that's why I'm married to my high school screen art. It's not an actress. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable with that. And, you know, she's still, you know, doing scenes and kissing dudes and make, having love scenes with guys and stuff like that. And I'm like, I don't know if I really feel comfortable with that. You know, she did the intruder love scene with Michael Ely, kissing him, love scene with him. And then she did a recent series. I think the series is on one of the streaming platforms. I want to say Amazon Prime, a series of, called Harlem. Um, it's about her and three other friends who are, you know, working their way up into corporate world. One's a, a singer that's kind of sleeping on another one's couch. Another one played by Grace Byers, I think, um, is uh, a Silver Spoon girl who runs a fashion house. And then there's another one who is a lesbian girl who runs her own online dating app specifically geared toward African-American gay men and women is pretty successful. So it's about these four girls. It's, it's, it's really um, kind of a reboot of Run the World that that's on Showtime that has uh, Brisha Webb and those other ladies on it. It's another another story about four sisters. I mean, all of these really are reboots of friends. I mean, of girlfriends, really. Uh, or if you really want to think about it, Living Single. Living Single kind of started everything off because then you had Living Single, you had Friends, and then you had girlfriends, um, and then you had all these other shows coming after. So I think these are reboots. But yeah, Devon Franklin. We don't know the full details because they're both kind of really staying coy about it or numb, numb, keeping it real private. The the real reasons why they decided to call it quits. But you know they called it quits. Okay. Um, update: Frederick County Public Schools. On one of my podcasts, I talked about how Frederick County Public Schools were part of a Department of Justice um, report that showed that they were abusing um, the um, seclusion of children with disabilities and special needs in their school. And so, you know, um, the Justice Department investigators found that, you know, Frederick County Public School had unnecessarily repeatedly secluded and physically restrained students with disabilities in violation of law. So, Senator Michael J. Ho, Ho, H-O-U-G-H, he's a Republican out of Frederick, is asking the Maryland State Department of Education to launch an independent investigation into the school system. He's calling for that. He says, these parents and teachers allege that supervisory staff were aware of the abuse of students, assaults on teachers, and stonewalled inquiries and retaliated against parents. Ho said, who's running for Frederick County executive in 2022, he wrote in a letter to State Superintendent Muhammad Chowdhury on Tuesday. He says, without question, the information in this report and the Justice Department report demand a full investigation by your office. So MSDE didn't say whether or not they were pursuing independent investigation, um, but they did say the department will be working with Frederick County Public Schools to ensure they implement the corrective action plan fully and robustly. Um, this is a spokesperson for Laura Rokowski, spokesperson for MSDE, replied in an email. 
Um, and so um, we're also going to get you the uh, going. We will also be doing a top to bottom review of existing regulations, processes, and procedures, and looking into this issue across the state to ensure that this or any other discriminatory activities does not occur in the future anywhere in Maryland. And so, um, you know, he's going after it. You know, Michael Michael Hole is going after it. Uh, he ain't letting it. You know, he ain't letting it. He ain't letting it die. You know, federal investigators found more than seventy two hundred and fifty incidents when students with disabilities at Frederick County Public Schools were improperly restrained or secluded. <laughs> the case involved 125 students, some as young as five years old. So you had 7,250 7, instances of students being restrained and secluded, improperly restrained and secluded. It's like, wow. So this is over like a two and a half year period. 7,200 times in a two and a half year period, right? And the the, Frederick, uh, and the Department of Justice has found that Frederick County Public Schools violated the uh, Americans with Disability Act, which prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities. Um, Maryland laws does not allow school personnel to use exclusion, restraint, or seclusion until less harmful interventions have been considered. Wow. So they're really getting it in, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy, you know, um, how our loved ones and students and children and adults are, with disabilities are being treated. Um, and, you know, it was reported that seclusion and restraint triggers some students to engage in self-harm and show signs of trauma. But Frederick County Public Schools did not Stop secluding students, even though the students showed, even though the students showed that they were in crisis, according to a federal investigator. So these kids were letting them know what you're doing to me is wrong, and they were hurting themselves and showing other signs of trauma, saying what you're doing to me is wrong. But even though they were showing it to these people, they were still didn't stop. My thing is this: somebody should go to jail for this, man. Somebody should go for jail for this because here's the problem with this, right? Just like with you know. Um, all things that happen to people that cause trauma, especially our individuals living with disabilities. These are scars that parents have to work with and deal with, right? Because if a parent at home has steps and processes to help deal with their loved one with a disability when they get unruly, right? And say, you know, the ultimate is that seclusion, right? How is that child going to react when that parent gets to the last resort and that last resort normally works at home, which is seclusion. But as soon as they, as soon as a child senses that they get in trouble, they automatically start hurting themselves because they have been abused at school by seclusion. And the parent hadn't even got to the seclusion part yet, but the child knows that they're in trouble. Our, our individuals live with disabilities. They live with disabilities, but they ain't stupid. They ain't dumb by no means. Right. Yeah, they got intellectual challenges and things like that, but that, that doesn't mean that they're just dumb, deaf, and blind or whatever you want to call it. These are individuals that have hearts and minds that have feelings. They might not be able to articulate it or show it in a, in a way that normal, you know, is what people expect normal people, as they call normal people to do, but they still have it. They still show it. They're not stupid. They understand what we're talking about, understand what we're saying. And so when a child at home knows they're going to get in trouble, 
But all of a sudden, they start hurting themselves because the school secluded them and physically restrained them, and the parents hasn't even done anything yet. That's a problem. You, that's therapy. You can't. That's something you can't fix. So somebody should go to jail. Somebody should go to jail for that, man. And it's and it's inexcusable. To me, it's inexcusable. It's inexcusable. And I think right now, my thing is this: MSDE with this justice report, the Department of Justice report. This should open the doors up to investigate every single school jurisdiction, all 24 school jurisdictions in the state of Maryland to see what they're doing as well. And those that are doing what Frederick County's doing, hold them accountable. Make an example out of somebody so we can deter this crap. You know, it's time to stop putting our kids with disabilities, living with disabilities in harm's way. They didn't ask to be born this way. They didn't, they didn't choose this for themselves. No child comes out and says, oh, I want to be, be disabled. No child does that. The parents didn't ask for that. You know what I'm saying? You know, I know there's some loving people out there in the world and loving parents out there that have adopted because they have a heart for children with disabilities, have adopted children with disabilities because they want to be able to protect them and, and help serve them, right? But nobody going into a marriage and going to a pregnancy says, oh, I want to have a disabled child. No one does that, right? And so... Parents have to deal with, now they have a child. They did everything right. Now they have a child, and all of a sudden the child's disabled, right? It's a hard pill to swallow. But as a loving parent, a lot of parents press on, but it's a hard pill to swallow. And then you're doing your best you can, right? And some days you're pulling your hair out. Some days you want to drink a fifth of gin straight, right? (laughs) Because of all the things you deal with, um, which your child is disabled, right? But you keep pressing on. And then you got to turn around and have this happen to your child, in a school that you trust that's going to take care of your child. So now the scars that this child's picked up at school, they're bringing them home to you. And now you got to deal with it. That's why somebody should go to jail. Somebody should be fired. That's, that's accountability needs to be ha- they had in this. Kids are self-harming themselves because of this, because they've been secluded this way. Somebody needs to be fired. Somebody needs to be fired and held accountable for this. So, you know... That's 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 my thing on that. And so I, I salute Senator Ho for going after this and pursuing this. I hope he I hope he pushes this all the way to um as far as it will go so that there's accountability um for this. Um so um and then <laughs> and then get this the long-term superintendent Terry Alban retired two weeks after the Justice Department announced the settlement. He said, but Ho says there are more people in the top roles who need to be held accountable. And so Frederick County Board of Education will pay Alban more than $800,000 over the next year and a half as a part of a settlement agreement. The payout includes Alban's contracted salary and pension and benefits as well as more than $300,000 for unused leave time. Man, listen, it says Alban's contract was set to expire in 2023. This happened on his watch. He shouldn't get a red cent. Well, I won't say he shouldn't get a red cent. He, should, he shouldn't get the $300,000 for um, unleave use time, and he shouldn't get that whole 800 He should just get his salary. That's it. That's it, because you allow this stuff to happen on your watch. You got to show some accountability, man. You, all of a sudden, the justice report comes out and then you resign or you retire because it's under your watch, dude. 
You shouldn't be paying that dude no $800,000. This happened on his watch. Some of that $800,000 should go to the families. I'm not saying the dude didn't earn his money as a superintendent, but I mean, come on, man. You you had these things happen under your watch. Come on, bro. They can't happen on your watch like that. So that $800,000 should be uh, $800,000 minus X hundred X hundred thousands, and then you get what you get after that because this happened on your watch. These children are not. These children suffering this trauma are not going to get that back, and it's going to be hard to get corrective action in that joint. And some of these parents might not see the results of the correction action while their child is still in school. And then who goes to say this stuff ain't still going on? Because we all know the pandemic's going on. You can't fix things overnight. You can't get bodies to school because the virus is still here. So how are they going to fix this? That's why I say people need to be held accountable, man. People need to be held accountable. But this is this is an endemic. What's the word I'm looking for? Come on, slow down, Troy. This is this is par for the course for U.S. education. I think the whole U.S. education system needs to be revamped, um, and more money needs to be put in it. More resources need to be put in education. Um, more from more from the federal and state levels of money should be poured in. You know, I was talking to somebody that's at the federal level in education. Um, they talked about how only a certain percentage of money comes from the feds and the rest of it comes from the local jurisdictions, the states where they're with the property taxes, right? I think there should be money coming from somewhere else, not just property taxes. There should be money coming from, if it's not the feds, it should be coming from somewhere else that's funding these school systems where they got enough teachers, they got enough resources, enough bodies, make salaries attractive enough, make resources. There shouldn't be no, education should be top-notch in this country. Everything from the number of teachers, there shouldn't be case managers out there with one case manager for every 50 kids they got to carry about, worry about. It should be one in 10 or one in five or something like that. There should be not, there shouldn't be a shortage of speech to pathologists. You know, these professions should be professions that people want to go into. Right. I know people do it because of love, but, you know, the love. And that's the one thing that and I talked about this on the podcast before. I know a lot of teachers teach because they love to teach. But at the same time, you still have to take care of your business, too, which is living in this economy. Right. And as the economy continues to get more and more expensive, you still don't want to pay teachers to keep up with the economy. You know, if these teachers, they love it. If they got it, it's, 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 it's one thing to be a teacher and love what you do and then deal with all the struggles that you got of teaching people's kids. And some people, some kids are coming from backgrounds that are traumatic and they're bringing that to school. You got a lot of kids out here, more kids out here with disabilities now. So you need more specialized trained teachers. Make that stuff attractive. Make it a priority. I mean, come on, you know, we putting priority on people being able to make money off YouTube. And I mean, it's great. And I'm not knocking those folks, you know, the country ways of the world, the people that, you know, making Jake Pauls of the world that make a ton of money without even going to college and making a ton of money off YouTube because of likes and Instagram and all this other stuff, getting sponsorships after a certain amount, like the algorithm kicks in. I mean, I can't knock nobody for that. But the U.S. education system needs to be beneficial to everybody. Everybody should get a quality education. There should be no shortage of teachers, no shortage of paraprofessionals. Paraprofessionals need to get paid $20, $30 an hour um, to be a paraprofessional and there should be standards and stuff like that I mean come on man and then this stuff won't be happening if you got resources in place enough resources I'm not saying give the school system school systems an open checkbook but give them enough resources to where 
you got plenty of teachers to cover this and cover. You got two teachers per classroom, two qualified teachers per classroom. And then when it comes to our children with IEPs and 504s and special education, you got the right staff in place. And if those people on the outside world make fifty hundred dollars an hour, then, you know, take care of them in the school system. Make sure they, you know, getting at least something according to that or something. There shouldn't be no shortage of speech therapists, OT therapists. You know what I mean? School psychologists, people that specialize in special education, crisis intervention. Hire those people. Put them in the classrooms. Make sure, you know, take care of everybody. You know, instead, we want to allow people to avoid paying billionaires to allow to or allow to avoid paying taxes and all kind of crap. But anyway, I digress, man. Let me get off that soapbox. But I got to, you know, every week I do a podcast. I got to I got to show some love for my for my disability community because, you know, I'm a father with a son living with autism. And so I got to make sure I show some love to them. I'm thinking about creating my own podcast, especially related to that. I got a couple of ladies that I serve with on CCAC that are interested in maybe putting together a podcast specifically talking about disabilities and so on and so forth. And so, um, but let me digress off of that though. Um, and just tell everybody happy holidays and all those things. And, you know, our our Christmas church message was from Pastor Keith Battle. Our Pastor John Jenkins sat down uh, and let Pastor Battle do the honors of um, uh, preaching the Christmas Day service. And he came from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And he talked about bearing gifts and that we all have gifts and that those gifts, you know, we should thank God for the gifts that we had, right? You know, um, he first started out a sermon talking about, you know, how the holiday seasons can be depressing for a lot of people, going back to mental health, you know. Um, we indulge in our guilty pleasures during the Christmas holiday and kind of really forget, you know, what the holiday season, especially Christmas, is all about. And so he talked about four points. He talked about, you know, um, during this season when we think of lost loved ones and we get depressed and fall into the depressed state for those we have lost, you know, you said, thank God for how long you had with that loved one, you know, um, you know, just thank God for the time that you had with that loved one. And instead of looking at the fact that you lost them, just look at all the good times, um, that you had with that loved one and knew that, you know, he called them home for a reason. Um, you know, also during this season, you get depressed about where you are in life. He talked about, you know, just uplifting yourself about, you know, you're telling yourself, I did the best with what I had this year. You know, I did the best with what I had to do this year. And just forgive yourself for doing your best or not doing your best this year. You know, even if you didn't do your best this year, even if you got a little slack, just forgive yourself. Don't take that in to this holiday season, these holiday seasons, and get depressed over it. You know, and then, you know, um, when we lose something, he talked about, well, what did we learn from what we lost? You know, find out what the message is in a loss, you know. Um, losing something puts you in a position to learn from the loss and gain wisdom. And so it could be loss of a loved one. You know, what's the message behind it? Or loss of a job, you know, um, what's the message in that? And really learn from that. Um, and realize that what you lost, whether it be a loved one or your job or whatever it is that you've lost, that, it didn't end in your life, that you're still here. You know, that loss didn't end in your life. Um, and really don't put your life uh, and hope in the people. You know, 
Um, we're all here, you know, it talks about in the book of James that we're all here for just a mist, a short time. And so when we start talking about our future, we should talk about, you know, if it's the Lord's will. And so, you know, don't put our hope and life into people and that we fall apart because somebody that was here that we love is all of a sudden no longer here. And then all of a sudden we lose hope and perspective and faith because God called that person home. So we want to take a look at that, man, and really, you know, put our hope in the fact that we didn't in our life and put our hope in him um, that he called these people home for a reason. And so we just want to make sure that we also protect our gifts. You know, God has given everybody a gift, you know, and you should present that gift to him. We talked about that, you know, um, not clothes or money, but your gift, the gift that he anointed you with, present it to him. If he anoints you with the gift of speaking, public speaking, you know, Give that gift to him. Publicly speak about who he is and what he does, right? Um, he talks about protecting your gift because there's going to be people out there that's going to try to minimize your gift, you know, it's going to try to downplay your gift, you know. He talked about Herod. Herod was a hater and he was jealous. He was full of jealousy and um, envy, and so he would do anything to try to, um, you know, devalue people's gifts, especially the gift of, of of the baby Jesus being born. He was like, well, you know, told the magic, let me know where he is so I can come and, you know, give him praise when all along he wanted to come and kill him. And so um, just be wary of your gift and protect your gift from people who don't honor or value or hate your gift, especially if you're, if it's your livelihood. If your livelihood is public speaking or you got to own business or you do, you make cards or crafts for a living or you do home improvement for a living. Don't, you know, allow people to devalue your gift. You know, don't allow people to use your gift for free. You know, asking you to volunteer your gift. Uh, I know we're asked to volunteer, you know, serve and, and stuff like that at our church and stuff like that. But that should be, you know, because you want to do that from your heart and also be wise enough to allow, allow the church to exploit your gift. Um, by having you, by overworking you more in your gift and your job actually pays you do. You know what I'm saying? Um, be wary of people that want to, that don't want to pay you the true value of your gift. Um, and then be, be excited around people who, or be around people who are excited about your gift. You know, just protect your gift from haters. Um, you know, find a purity in your gift. You know, you know your gift is pure. If, if your gift is public speaking, it's coming from the heart, Stand on that purity. You know, Mary and Joseph carried the gift of character, right? And Mary and Joseph were pure people, and purity matters. Um, and so they were anointed, but they weren't arrogant. And so, you know, just take care of that, you know, and also recognize that sometimes there's going to be pandemonium in your gift, right? Um, there's going to be chaos while you're doing your gift. If you run a business, you know, home improvement, even with public speaking, whatever it is you do, there could be chaos around you going on. Stay focused on your gift. You know, he talked about Mary and how all this stuff was going on when she was about to deliver the baby Jesus. Everything was just going crazy around her. But she focused in the chaos. You know, she chose to honor God and she had the baby Jesus. You know, make sure you're able to deliver that gift in the midst of chaos. You know, sometimes you got to push out all the mess and just do it. Um, you know, and also recognize that just because you don't deliver your gift, without fanfare or support doesn't mean it's not worthy or great. So even if your gift is doing something that people don't cheer on um, or give you a whole bunch of fanfare to, just remember 
you, you were gifted in it and you're an expert in it and that there's one person that will give you all the fanfare and the love you need and that is God. So with that being said, remember to protect your gift. As the Wu-Tang claim would say, protect your neck and make sure you don't let nobody exploit your gift, use your gift, devalue your gift and making sure that you, you know, if your gift is, you know, your livelihood, protect that gift. Make sure you nobody's trying to pimp that gift. You got to make, you got to take care of your family. You know, if your gift is out there in IT or home improvement or whatever, the restaurant, your chef, protect that gift. Make sure you, you get paid for the value of your gift, but also be humble uh, in your anointing of your gift and always remain humble in your gifting as well and always give praise to God. Thanks again for tuning in to My Thing Is This Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. I appreciate all my listeners. Make sure you like and subscribe and share this podcast with many people that you uh, know. Um, I post it out and share it on Facebook and other platforms. Make sure you do the same. Uh, you can find it on Anchor FM or Spotify. Um, and I was supposed to do a shout out this week. I forgot my shout outs. So um, I'm shouting out people. They don't know I'm shouting it out, but you know I'm not one of those one that is looking to get paid because I'm shouting somebody out. Um, I want to shout out um, my man Keir Gaines. Well, he's not my man. I don't know him personally. I just follow him on Instagram, but he's doing great things in mental health. Um, so check out Keir Gaines on, on Instagram, um, on other platforms. He was on Oprah's show. So, you know, we talked about mental health today. Check him out. Check out Erica St. Bernard. Um, I don't I, I don't know if I have a link to her website or not, but I know she's a, a very good therapist. I think she specializes in couples therapy. Um, so check Erica St. Bernard out. And there's a host of other therapists out there that are pretty good. I just can't remember the names off the top of my head. Charge it to my head and not my heart. But, um... Yeah, just just check them out, man, and and make sure you take care of your mental health and know that, you know, if you want to talk about your mental health, it ain't snitching, you know. Um, it ain't snitching when you want to talk about your mental health, especially when you talk about it with your boys. Um, it ain't, it ain't, it's not, or should I say it's not snitching. It's real. We all need help. And so... Erica St. Bernard, you can find her at um, yourlifeiswell.com. She is um, a licensed marriage and family counselor, providing therapy for millennials and couples and assisting them in reaching their personal goals. Her company is called Your Life As Well, LLC. Um, she's actually located in the DMV. She's off Northview Drive in Bowie. Um, you can call her up. Um, you can make appointments with her. Uh, let's see her website. Your life as well as a website. Um, she does great work. I actually met Erica St. Bernard um, through a marriage couples thing that we did um, with um, Greg and Latanya Southern. Um, great couple. Great couple. Um, living here in the DMV. Latanya is uh, a graduate of American University, and she actually had this little marriage retreat for couples to go to. Um, at um, American University and Erica St. Bernard was one of those people that was there as one of the presenters very informative um, so check out Erica St. Bernard um, if you get a chance to let's google her look her up 
Um, and of course, you know, Latanya Southern, let me shout out Latanya Southern. She is a principal um, in the Prince George's County Public School System. And she's actually, um, the, she's an alumni of American University. She actually, uh, it's funny, she knows a, um, she knows someone I grew up with um, down in little old Cambridge, Maryland. She knows Dr. Bronte Jones. Um, it's interesting. She knows Dr. Bronte Jones. And I remember um, just having a conversation with Latanya and telling her where I was from. And we found out she knew Bronte. She's like, yeah, Bronte's my girl. I said, yeah, Dr. Bronte Jones. Yeah, she's, 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 she's on point. And so Latanya is the actual principal of XL Academy Public Charter School here in Prince George's County. Um, and so her website is xlacademypcs.org. Check her out. Uh, so check out at St. Bernard at yourlifeaswell.com. And let me see. My man Keir Gaines is a therapist. Let me see if I can get his information up here real quick. Um, he is... He is featured on responsibility.org. Um, he is a um, has a website, Kier and Them, K-I-E-R and Them. Um, check him and his wife out. Him and his wife and his beautiful daughter out. Um, he posts a lot of content on uh, social media and all that. Um, they do a lot of skits and um, around therapy sessions and stuff like that. I also think that they're expecting to another child. So check out kierandthem.com, K-I-E-R-A-N-D-them.com. Um, Dude is dynamic. Talks about love and marriage, family parenting, family and parenting, home and lifestyle. Gives a lot of interesting messages um, to everybody. So those are my shout outs, Erica St. Bernard and Kier Gaines. Um, those are my two shout-outs this week. Also, shout-out to Latanya Southern over at XL, XL Academy Charter Public School here in Prince George's County. And so with that being said, I've been on here for a minute, so I'm going to go ahead and sign off. I wish you peace and blessings, happy holidays, happy Kwanzaa, happy Hanukkah, and all those good things, and happy uh, New Year coming up. And like I said, I'll do a special podcast at the end of the year just to kind of recap the year uh, in review, so to speak. Uh, just go over a couple of things that happened on the course of a year and talk about 2022. And we are out. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. Be sure to tune in next week. Hit the like and subscribe buttons. And then remember, the next time somebody says something suspect, or eh, tell them my thing is this, because your opinion matters. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. Have a blessed week. And we are out.